welcome to Nutrition and Clinical Practice Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeanette Hassey, the Editor-in-Chief of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. The theme for the October 2020 issue of NCP is Gastrointestinal Disease States and Associated Nutrition Challenges. So joining me today are Dr. Carol Ireton-Jones and Dr. Michael Weisberg, co-authors of the paper, Nutrition Management of Irritable Bowel Syndrome, Physician and Dietitian Collaboration. And this paper is published in the October 2020 issue of NCP. So to introduce our guests, Dr. Ireton Jones is a registered dietitian in private clinical practice, specializing in GI disorders. And Dr. Weisberg is a gastroenterologist with Digestive Health Associates of Texas. Both are here in Dallas, Texas, where I also reside. So thank you, Dr. Ireton Jones and Dr. Weisberg for joining me today. So before we start our discussion, I'd like to ask our guests if they have any disclosures on this topic they'd like to share. Dr. Ireton Jones? I do not. Dr. Weisberg? Uh, I do not, and I'd like to thank you for myself and Carol for having us on today. Great. So immediately when you read the title of your paper, you are informed that the care of patients with irritable bowel syndrome is optimized when you have a multidisciplinary approach. And this really kind of mirrors the approach that ASMA has always had, that when nutrition professionals from different disciplines work together, our patients get the best care possible. So tell me a story. Tell me what brought you two together. In particular, how did you start working together to care for patients with IBS? Dr. Weisberg and I have known each other uh, for quite some time, about 30 years. In fact, we uh, worked together in a previous private practice that I had where he assisted us as our medical director. Since that time, I've worked in home nutrition support and then, of course, in my private practice now, which is GI-focused. And he and I worked together gosh, uh, uh, many years ago on a very complex Crohn's patient that we were able to work together and have him bypass parenteral nutrition and recover using enteral nutrition. So I think that was our first real time to work together. And since then, Dr. Weisberg has just been a great resource for my patients. And I hope for his patients, I've been a great resource as well. So I think we learned to work together even at an early age. Yeah. And I think that as far as caring for patients with IBS, it's just such a large uh, part of my practice are patients with IBS. And I send so many nutrition patients to care for all different reasons, from inflammatory bowel disease to liver disease, whatever. But because there's just such a large proportion of patients with IBS and nutrition is so important in that field, that that's why we work together for those patients. And I would like to just mention one other point is that Dr. Weisberg truly supports nutrition as a component of care and the patients get that. So they, they are happy to see their physician, but he then refers out and, and really makes it multidisciplinary, which as you know, is something that works well. Dr. Weisberg, I want to address something with you here for a minute. And in the paper, you guys talk about these different subtypes of IBS. So for our listeners, can you just kind of briefly tell us what those are, but then also talk about how a typical patient presents to your office and, and what kind of complaints they tend to have when they come to see you? Sure. The subtypes of 
IBS are based upon the bowel pattern, and there are three subtypes of IBS. First, there's diarrhea, where the patient's bowel movements are more liquid than the norm, or they're more frequent than the norm. Second, there's constipation, which is where the bowel movements are harder than the norm, harder to expel than the norm, or in which there's a longer period of time in between the bowel movements than the patient feels is acceptable or which makes the patient uncomfortable. Finally, there's the mixed subset, which involves both diarrhea and constipation. And for the 35 years that I've been a physician, it's this mixed subset that we, when we hear that, we kind of immediately focus on as irritable bowel syndrome. Not, don't exclude everything right away, but that's the one that really seems to be classic irritable bowel syndrome through the years. The typical patient that I'll see with irritable bowel syndrome is a woman, uh, since it's about six to one women to men in the United States. And they're between the ages of 18 and 35. And 18 is the lowest is probably because that's the age at which I'll start seeing patients. When they come to see me, they've usually seen other doctors. I'm usually not the first doctor they've seen. Many come with complete written histories of all the different doctors they've seen, the tests that have been done, and what the results have been. The patients seem to say that their symptoms get worse with stress. And a lot of them immediately say to me, can you do something about my stress? Along with the Rome criteria, they usually have had the symptoms for at least six months and it's been present the last three months. The Rome criteria are criteria that were devised by doctors and nutritionists, people that met in Rome, Italy in 2016 and devised how do you define irritable bowel syndrome. The symptoms that they present with are gas and bloating, abdominal pain, and then the mixture of the three that I talked about, the bowel patterns, diarrhea, constipation, or the mixed diarrhea and constipation. However, I think it's important to say that these symptoms in some patients can be completely overshadowed by other symptoms that are extraneous, but things like nausea, vomiting, heartburn, fever, chills, et cetera, can also come into the patient's complaints, even though maybe something like the fever was something that just happened when they had a flu or a virus a few months before. So, Dr. Weisberg, your paper also talks about how patients with irritable bowel syndrome should have both medical and nutritional treatment. So, what are some of the basics of medical treatment that you start with? The first thing is, and I think the most important thing I learned 35 years ago, and this was based on research from Johns Hopkins, that the most important thing a physician could do, and I think also a nutritionist can do for a patient with irritable bowel syndrome, is to be there for the patient. When the patient knows they have a stable relationship with a doctor who cares about them and who's going to be there for them to take care of them, I think that they start feeling better just for that. And I think that incorporating Carol into that, her spending time with the patient and my spending time with the patient, I think is the most important treatment tool that we have. However, there are, of course, other treatment tools that we offer our patients. Because a lot of them complain of stress, as being a precursor or a precipitating factor for their IBS, we try to offer them things to reduce their stress. Things like yoga, meditation, we have counselors that we work with that we refer them to, or even uh, refer them for exercise programs. When it comes to medications that I use, I think there's three main types. First, I think, is fiber, and I've been using Metamucil for my 30 years of practice. I find that it's most effective in the patients that have the mixed 
diarrhea and constipation. It seems to change both so that instead of having the diarrhea and constipation, they settle in the middle and have better, easier bowel movements. Then there's a whole category of what are called antispasmodic medications, which are medicines that relax the bowel and keep it from spasming, which is its main way of causing discomfort or pain to the patient. And I have a variety of those that I use from very mild ones to ones that you can just put under your tongue and work within two to five minutes to relieve the spasm to the more powerful ones that contain benzodiazepines. And finally, I also have used successfully tricyclic antidepressants. The one that I use mainly is Elevil, and I use it in low dosage at nighttime for patients. And I've found that we have a lot of success with irritable bowel patients using that as well. So Dr. Arton Jones, once you have a patient that's been kind of optimized medically, what's the nutrition approach for those patients? And do you use some type of a stepwise process to determine which nutrition therapy is appropriate? Well, first of all, the patient is usually seeing their physician. And if it's Dr. Weisberg, then they have likely... They're, they're probably somewhere in the process because uh, Dr. Weisberg and typically you would see a patient who may um, have a history of these symptoms for a long time. So they're kind of ready to go on and they'll be doing some medical at the same time they're doing nutrition. Or it may be somebody who's early on and they're they're just starting the medical, but the, the dietitian or my my part, the nutrition part, gets uh, added in early. One of my favorite uh, referrals that I got from Dr. Weisberg, um, the it was actually a man, Dr. Weisberg, but he called me, and and told me that Dr. Weisberg said he need to call me to see him because he had something. Let me think of what is it? Oh yeah, grumpy guts. So he didn't mean a, instead of irritable bowel syndrome. So I think um, one of the things about IBS and the diet is IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, sort of lends itself for you to think, is this really something? Is it really something that I can work on? And the answer is yes. And the answer is also that nutrition can make a very big difference in these patients. When I first see a patient, I'm trying to zero in on what symptoms they have, because typically it's an IBS patient referred to me, or the patient may say, I have IBS. So I try to zero in on what symptoms are primary. So is it constipation? Is it diarrhea? Is it a mix? Is it, it may simply be bloating. It may not have any other symptoms. The patient may not have any other symptoms than constipation. So really the first approach is to try to figure out what their major symptom is and then to target the nutrition care to that. I do use the low FODMAP diet primarily, but there are different approaches. You can use more simplified approach if, a, if you can identify very specific symptoms. And you don't feel like you have a patient who really wants to go the full-on program, which is, with the low FODMAP diet, a full elimination of high FODMAP foods for a period of three to four weeks, and then a slow addition of 
high FODMAP foods back. So first is elimination, three to four weeks, staying on low FODMAP foods. Then reintroduction, which is adding these higher FODMAP foods back uh, methodically and assessing for any symptoms that might occur. And then finally, devising what we're kind of calling our the personalized diet for this patient. So that's that's really the the comprehensive approach, but you can do a more simplified approach. My usual approach is to talk with the patient and determine which would be most effective. However, nine times out of 10, when I approach with a more simplified program, um, just limiting some of the big offenders that are high in FODMAPs that are also common in the diet. Most everyone says, I, I think I just want to go ahead and do the full elimination diet. Let me do that for the three or four weeks and really know what foods um, bother me by taking all of the offenders out and then reintroducing these one by one. Well, that kind of leads me to my next question. So can you explain exactly what is the FODMAP elimination diet and also what it is not, kind of how it came into being? And I think another thing that I see a lot is sometimes people think it's a forever diet, like you need to be gluten-free if you have celiac disease. Can you kind of address those principles? That is such a an important question. And I think that is why I have spent many years learning about the FODMAP elimination diet. So it's it's fairly complex, even for the person that is is presenting it. So the registered dietitian that is presenting this diet, we have to understand it as well because it, it is a complex diet because it's initially an elimination period. So foods that have been identified as higher in FODMAPs are eliminated. When I first started doing this particular diet instruction, I would give people a list of high FODMAP foods and say, okay, you can have any other foods than these. And interestingly enough, people could not think of any other foods. So I had to, to contrast it with high FODMAP foods, low FODMAP alternatives. But one thing that is clear is this elimination period is an elimination period. It's not a full elimination diet forever. Our goal is to have you eliminate high FODMAP foods and then add them back. Reintroduction phase is what this is called. Some people call it challenge phase, but you reintroduce high FODMAP foods to determine what your tolerance is of these foods and when you feel greatest. So it is not meant to be an elimination diet for the rest of your life, just as you mentioned with the gluten-free diet. That is very different. Gluten-free is important for celiacs lifelong. This is not the same. One thing I also tell my patients who are doing the low FODMAP diet is if you go ahead and you're, you 
are mistakenly eating a high FODMAP food and you realize, oh my gosh, it's causing me symptoms, then just know that that's a one-time thing and you can go back to the elimination or you might already be able to note that that's one of the foods that is going to cause me a problem. But you haven't hurt yourself versus a celiac patient that consumes gluten can in fact cause some challenges in their villi and actually damage them. So um, a very different thing. So what about if you have a patient on um, enteral feeding, whether in the hospital and at home, can you apply those same principles of a low FODMAP diet or a FODMAP elimination uh, period to someone on um, enteral feeding? Well, that is a very good question. And it is one that I have addressed more than one time. The challenge is with the patients who are on a tube feeding who, and typically they will be on uh, enteral nutrition and they'll have diarrhea that is just not treatable, that's when typically we'll look at the components of the tube feeding product and determine if there are any components in this product that might be um, associated with higher FODMAP foods, which might be causing a problem with this patient. Because as Dr. Weisberg said, there are a lot of patients who do have IBS. So it's likely that a patient who requires enteral nutrition may be one of those patients. This becomes even more important now, I think, with the, with the things that are being added to enteral nutrition formulas like prebiotics. Inulin can is a prebiotic, but and it is often added for fiber. And it can be a major problem for our patients who have IBS. Um, there, I even noticed that some of the um, probiotics have inulin added to them. I'm not a fan of probiotics anyway for IBS. There's no good data to show that they help, but having that added to the probiotic, it's just something that we have to take a look at. If your tube feeding patient, your enteral nutrition patient is having diarrhea and you, you think, well, I've done everything right, take a look at those components. Also, if you, if you already have thought of this and you have a list of your best lower FODMAP enteral products, don't forget that products content changes fairly often. And so you have to go back and take a look and see what they have added to the formula now. So um, Dr. Weisberg, what, what kind of value have you seen in this multidisciplinary approach and, and how does the effectiveness of this approach compare with just having a patient come in to see you and then you hand them a piece of paper or refer them to a website? We've seen tremendous value through this multidisciplinary approach. This is the approach that the Mayo Clinic takes and a lot of tertiary referral centers take. I think the Mayo Clinic became famous for it. When you go to the Mayo Clinic, with a problem. They have a group of doctors in different fields who see you and evaluate you. They have nutritionists and other 
uh, people who see you, and then they all get together and meet and talk and decide what's best for the patient. And I think it's a great approach. I think you have to have someone that you're working with who you can communicate with, because, and Carol and I communicate very well, talk to each other on the phone, email each other so that we can take care of these patients in the most appropriate way. I think there's tremendous value in this approach. It's been around, as I said, for a long time from the Mayo Clinic, tertiary referral centers. I think Carol and I show that it can be done effectively in the private practice setting, as long as you have two people that are willing to work with the patient, spend time with the patient, and try to get the best possible results for the patient. When I used to hand patients a piece of paper, I used to get these things off the internet like everybody else, low FODMAP diet, low FODMAP diet. And when I would hand them a piece of paper and then have them come back in and ask them about it, they would basically say to me that they didn't do anything about it. They couldn't understand it. It didn't seem, it was just too hard to follow and it wasn't for them. And the same thing when I tried to refer them to a website. Much better now that Carol is the one who takes time to work with the patient, to explain things to the patient, to answer their questions. I couldn't answer a lot of their questions because I'm not a nutritionist. And unfortunately, the medical education to being a doctor and even to being a gastroenterologist is sadly lacking in nutrition. So the uh, benefit of this approach is that we've gotten a lot more patients into a state where they're happy with their lives, they're not afraid to eat, not afraid to go out to eat, and um, we don't have to see them nearly as often. You kind of um, mentioned this, Dr. Weisberg, so Dr. Irene Jones. I'm, I'm assuming that when you sit down with these patients and you're counseling them specifically on an elimination diet, that it can take quite a bit of time. So have you seen any other kind of hidden benefits from these counseling sessions or having these patients learn how to eliminate FODMAPs from their diets? Well, one of the things that I have found, and I found it recently, even in telemedicine, so having them sit down in front of me or on telemedicine, we've done a lot of phone and Zoom consults. Someone, I, I think Dr. Weisberg said it, someone is listening to what they have to say about, I think, that sometimes what I eat must be causing this problem. And so it's, it's a real relationship that you can get that I think um, makes a difference. One of the things I like to tell the patients is, I think the FODMAP diet was kind of hard for me too. So I've learned it and I'm going to help you to understand it and once you understand it, you'll see that it's it's not so hard to make these substitutions from high FODMAP foods to low FODMAP foods. Also, at the beginning of my counseling sessions, I have a handout that just describes FODMAPs and each one of these, oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols, and what they actually do in the GI tract. And it's I think that has been just starting with understanding that, they can see, oh, and this is why this is happening. And that's exactly, that sounds exactly like me. And then we go to the foods and I say, these are the foods that are associated with these symptoms. So um, I think that they feel heard. They understand why we're doing this. And then they, they actually get 
pretty creative with the foods that they um, eliminate and 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 cooking and there's recipes online and different things so there's actually been benefits to me i've learned from them they learned from me i know now a great brown rice pasta that is wonderful for uh, my patients who are avoiding wheat at the first part of the elimination diet so i i've learned things from them they've learned from me and Another thing I'd like to mention is it's not a one-time thing. So if you think you're going to do a low FODMAP diet instruction and then tell them, oh, and after you feel better in three weeks, you want to start adding these foods, that you're not really doing a service to your patient. So I always tell them it's going to be two or three visits. So that can be a challenge, especially since Dr. Weisberg and I are in private practice. So it is either an insurance reimbursable visit or it may be paid for out of pocket. But either way, it there needs to be at least a follow-up. And my favorite follow-up is the second visit where they come in and say, oh my gosh, I can't believe how much better I feel. So I always require a happy dance, which we can do <laughs> on Zoom because they just, they're just amazed how much better they feel. And if they don't, that's when it's a phone call to Dr. Weisberg. Okay, what do you think we ought to do here? What about this? Um, there, there are other things we mention in our paper that you can try as well that may be a treatment, a further treatment for these GI symptoms that these patients have. I think what I liked hearing both of you say is that we work together with the patient, with the patient. You're not telling the patient what to do, but it really is a collaboration. And I think that is always what Aspen and nutrition professionals and, and others have tried to do is um, make the patient the center of the care and have them involved in their care. So I really appreciate that. Um, but before we close, I just want to ask if either of you have any other comments that you want to share with our listeners today. Uh, I have two things I'd like to say. The first is I think it's important the physicians, what the physician's attitude is as far as the referral to the nutritionist. I don't think you just say, you know, my assistant will give you the name of someone to see and maybe they can help you and things like that. I think what you do is what I do. I say to the patient, we're lucky enough to have the top nutritionist in the world living in our area. She's the nutritionist who came up with all the formulas for how you treat critically ill patients. And she happens to be right here and she can help you and help you with your problems and get you better. So my patients are excited to go see Dr. Ireton Jones. A lot of them look her up, a lot of them read about her, and they realize the contributions that she's made to the field of nutrition, and they know that they're going to be helped. The second thing I'd like to say is that neither Dr. Ireton Jones or myself run factories. Medicine has changed in a lot of ways to where doctors are geared to seeing as many patients as possible having nurse practitioners and PAs, physician's assistants, see their patients also so that they can run up the numbers. I don't do that. Every patient that comes to see me sees me, Dr. Michael Weisberg. Same thing with Carol. Every patient that comes to see her sees Dr. Ireton Jones. And we spend the necessary time to get the patient better. 
I think both of us would rather make one patient better than see 10 patients who we can't get better. And I think that that's important. Wow, well, um, thank you, Dr. Weisberg. That that was lovely. And I, I would just like to say, I can't imagine being alone and trying to manage these patients. It's so wonderful to have the collaboration with Dr. Weisberg as we do when we work with our nutrition support patients. So I don't think anyone should try to manage this complex GI issue or any of these on their own. And it's not always easy to find your colleagues, especially us out here in private practice. But once you do, continue that collaboration and further develop it because in the end, it just benefits our patients fully. Well, I want to thank you both, Dr. Ireton Jones and Dr. Weisberg, for sharing some great expertise with our listeners. And I want our listeners and our readers to find out more about these GI states and associated nutrition challenges and the October 2020 issue of Nutrition and Clinical Practice. So thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thanks.